was partly how I did my travel, <laughs> was through the reading of books. Sometime later when I saw Emily Dickinson's um, There Is No Frigate Like a Book, uh, it really appealed to me because I understood that very, very, very much, you know. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, H. Nigel Thomas relays his experiences growing up in the Caribbean, his love of teaching, and how his identity as a gay black man has informed his work. At the age of 22, Nigel left his home for Quebec, where he studied African-American literature. He became a high school teacher, then a professor, before publishing his first novel, Spirits in the Dark, about a young man who undergoes a spiritual ritual in order to examine his inner self. Over the next three decades, Nigel published academic texts, short stories, poetry, and novels, and he became well-known in the community. As an editor of Cola Magazine and the host of Lectures Logos, a long-running reading series that takes place in Montreal in French and English. Now 76 years old, he's writing his 14th book, and yet still managed to find time to speak with me. Nigel Thomas, you were born in a rural area of St. Vincent and Grenadines in 1947. Mm-hmm. What was your early childhood like? I lived with my parents until I was about three and a half. And um, after that, I went to live with my grandparents. Where I lived, people, pretty much everyone, except you were a teacher or a shopkeeper, you earned your living through agriculture. Mm. And uh, my grandparents were no exceptions. My father worked at the sugar factory um, during the sugarcane harvest. Other than that, he too farmed. Like all children in rural areas that are highly dependent on agriculture, we had chores, and so I had quite a few of those uh, in my boyhood days. You had brothers and sisters who also helped around? Um, Well, I lived alone with my grandparents, so pretty much all the chores. (laughs) I had to do all the chores that were assigned to me. My brothers, three of them, lived with my parents. We had radically different existences. You and your brothers? Yeah. And and why were you you with your grandparents? (laughs) That's a long story. (laughs) Um... Uh, there's, I say, the French term for it is a mésalliance. Uh, my mother's marriage was not particularly approved of by my grandparents and my grandfather even more so. And he forbade my mother after she got married from visiting the family house. Mm. And... About five years after my mother was married, I came along and his heart softened at the point where he saw me when I was about nine days old and he spoke to my mother and he told her she should name me Hubert Nigel because I happened to be my mother's, even at that point, darkest child. And Hubert means outstanding and Nigel does literally mean black. (laughs) So... Yep, and uh, from there on, my mother began visiting my grandparents' household. 
Uh, with the children, um, but I was the youngest, so I mean, I was the third child. And uh, I bonded with my grandparents. And uh, I very early on had the intuition that I didn't like my father. So, <laughs> so I, apparently it was I who chose to live with my grandparents. At the age of three. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about them. Um, I, I believe you're... Your grandfather was the one who encouraged you to read? Yeah, uh, he was an avid reader, always reading. And uh, I, I remember saying, well, I would like to read too. <laughs> and, <laughs> Why not? Well, and um, I mean, I know some of the stuff because my grandfather kept a journal. And so he taught me to read. I remember the exercises and so on and so forth. He himself had been briefly, he had been a teacher quite briefly, and uh, he had not been a particularly good father to his children and I suspect he was using me um, to compensate for that, mm. to make amends. Mm -hmm. You would sit on your grandfather's lap or hang out with him? Oh and, yes, uh, yeah. or sit on the floor sit in front floor. of him or what, what kind have of you. All sorts of, I had an uncle as well who had been a teacher. So there were books left over from, you know, those days. Uh, which he used. I think I was a fast learner, mm -hmm. and that encouraged him. I mean, he kept me ahead of the curriculum uh, in school, certainly in math and uh, in in language arts, for sure, until about grade four. He lost interest then, I suppose. So did you know... From an early age, you wanted to be a writer, or just that you enjoyed no, being around books? No, 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 no. I, um, I never really indulged in any sort of creative writing. I, I was praised at school for writing well, um, speaking well as well, and and uh, yeah. Um, but no, I. Never thought I'd be a writer. I mean, I loved books. I loved the stories in mm. them. Particularly, you know, I was in a rural community of less than a thousand people. Hardly ever went to the capital. That was partly how I did my travel, <laughs> was through the reading of books. Right. Sometime later when I saw Emily Dickinson's um, There Is No Frigate Like a Book, uh, it really appealed to me because I understood that very, very, very much, you know, pages of prancing poetry. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it was a small uh, community and everybody knew each other. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And everybody knew everybody's business. Oh, well, that was <laughs> the principal occupation. Ah. <laughs> to know people's business. People suspected from an early age that you might be gay. How old were you when you I began have, to wonder about yourself? I would have been about seven or eight. And, uh, and homosexuality was illegal and still is illegal in St. Vincent and yeah, the Grenadines. Yeah. By the time I was 10, I certainly knew about homosexuality and, and um, about at least one person in the village who was identified as being gay or uh, homosexual at the time. Uh, or actually more in terms of the slur that was used. Did it, did it impact the way you saw your future? I, I never saw myself necessarily as being that way. Uh, in fact, I'm 
pretty sure that I spent all of my childhood never imagining that I was gay, even though people tried to tell me that I was and and tried to beat it out of me or to humiliate me to the point where act like a man, act like a man. That was a constant refrain. You probably didn't think about your future when you were too young, but you had made a decision to leave St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And what, what went into that decision? There's so many factors. I didn't... I mean, I knew what a good standard of living was, and I didn't feel that I had the resources in St. Vincent for a good standard of living. I also knew that uh, there were numerous educational opportunities in the metropolitan countries, the former colonizers. Therefore, I should head there. You leave uh, your home for Canada. What was your first impression? Um, I came in the winter. I, uh, I got my visa in October, beginning of October. And then I arrived here, I think it was the 21st of December. The ground was already coated in snow and all of that. And then, of course, the travail began of adjusting myself. One of the first good memories I have, I lived in Burgundy. I did a lot of walking when I was in the Caribbean, and so I went walking and came up at water and came upon the Water Library. And mm -hmm. oops, that was wonderful. I went in and I was told I couldn't join, I had to pay. Uh, but I could come during opening hours and read. Wonderful. <laughs> that was great, absolutely. So you worked this into your schedule, did you? Oh, yeah, I did, certainly did. Um, all my spare time, and I cannot tell you how many books I read during that period. Not very long after that, I, um, I got invited to take French language classes and uh, they paid me a stipend and it, the first 10 weeks and then the next 10 weeks and after I left there able to converse in French for sure. After two sessions? Yeah. I've been taking it for about four years. Well uh, you see it was immersion uh, you did it six hours, okay. five days a week. I mean, there's no way you could leave it not knowing. And so, and I was enthusiastic. I didn't just go to the classes at home. I studied. I bought French records. Listened to the radio, that uh, sort of thing. Yeah, and all that sort of thing. And I, whenever I went out and anyone started speaking to me in English, you know, the butcher or whomever, I stopped them, and conversation went on in French, however stumbling my French was. <laughs> so you enrolled in, was it at Concordia? Um, BA Concordia, MA Concordia, uh, Diploma in Education, McGill, PhD, University of Montreal. After you got your, your teaching certificate, that, then you became a teacher. That's right. And did you enjoy teaching? I did, extremely so, um, very much so. For the first few years, I think I really, 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 really enjoyed it. In the last years, not so much. Uh, I started out teaching English 
uh, uh, mother tongue and um, enjoyed it. And if I dare say so, so did my students. <laughs> In fact, the very first year I taught uh, grade 10 uh, English, LaSalle High School, the students started a petition to get me to teach them in grade 11. <laughs> That's a reward right there, isn't and it? I, I begged them to squash it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, you know, the jealousies that that sort of thing can create. And um, oh, But that must have felt good. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it certainly did. And um, I remember that the principal came to observe my lessons. Of course, they have to observe your lessons to decide whether or not you should get tenure. And um, he told the staff that he had witnessed the best poetry ever in my class that day. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, when I got um, the Molson and... Um, That's the award you got. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned it to my former colleagues from there. That principal replied and he said, I do remember he was an excellent teacher. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, but... Uh, that was in the early days, in the last days of high school teaching. <clears throat> no, it wasn't quite the same thing. Your specialty was U.S. literature, is that correct? Uh, African-American. African-American, okay. And your first publication was an academic book called From Folklore to Fiction. To fiction. Right. Yeah, that was a conversion of my PhD thesis. All right, okay. A study of folk heroes and rituals in the black American novel. Mm -hmm. What struck you about black American literature? Well, I, um, it certainly was the first, my first foray into black ontology came from my readings of James Baldwin and Richard Wright. Mm -hmm. The folk heroes are actually folk figures, um, mythological figures that to some extent incarnated uh, the aspirations Certainly, if you, if for one who lived, for someone who lived under Jim Crow, for example, you couldn't very well uh, challenge the white establishment, and so you created mythological figures who could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was the sort of thing you lived vicariously uh, through them. Of course, the rituals were, in fact, more or less used to purge themselves uh, of the sort of anger and venom and bitterness and so on and so forth to, in fact, allow them to live sane lives. Your, your first novel includes a ritual in which... Yeah, Jerome um, goes through a... We call it in St. Vincent, uh, well, in the Caribbean because the religion's now widespread across the Caribbean. We call it a morning ritual. It's, it's pretty much, it was pretty much brought from Africa. Um, yeah, and in his particular case, it was because he needed to connect to the community, which he had rejected. And one of the things that colonialism did is that it taught us to hate ourselves, mm -hmm. to feel inferior, to see 
colonizers as our saviors and so on and so forth. And Jerome fell into that trap and in so doing alienated himself, both from the community and from himself. Mm-hmm. He's also gay and is afraid of the persecution. Mm-hmm and decides that he wouldn't live his gay life. And so he has his repressed sexuality, his self-hatred, the hatred as well for his community. And he goes into a cave. Is this the same ritual that is actually... Yeah, the um, I, the cave is sort of um, a kind of a rhetorical device that I chose, but mm. not, you don't necessarily have to go into a cave or ideally, a dark space. Anyway. You need a dark space for mm-hmm. sure. You has even at the very least, you must be blindfolded uh, throughout the entire process. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Well, the purpose of the ritual is to get you to look inside yourself, and I, that's that's what fascinated me about that religion. Anyway, always from the time I was a child, <laughs> because I I saw how powerful it actually was. Um, my, I, I said earlier on that my grandfather had not been a particularly good father. Uh, he, during the Depression, he'd left, abandoned my grandmother and his seven, well, there were six at the time, children, and uh, took up with his mistress, who was actually a next-door neighbor. <laughs> well, that's convenient. And he didn't really have enough resources for two families. And, um, you know, as I say elsewhere, where a man gets his pleasure, there he spends his treasure. So he neglected his in-wedlock family and took on this other family and so on and so forth. And uh, they they lived close enough. They would see him come and go, his children, I mean, and my grandmother. They would see him come and go while they struggled. Now, this woman, the mistress, she... For some reason, sorry, what be, religion? Be, it's called a spiritual Baptist religion officially. Oh, okay, uh, I give it different names in the novel. Mm. Yeah, lots of there are lots of women, both as members and as leaders. And in this particular case, the story I'm going to tell you, uh, it's a woman who was acting as the pointer, who was the pointer, as opposed to Pointer Francis in my novel. And I was about eight. It's a Sunday morning. My bedroom was close to the main door. My grandparents' bedroom was further back in the house. And I heard somebody knocking on the door, and I heard someone saying, Miss Dixon, Miss Dixon, Miss Dixon. So I, I went and I woke my grandparents and told them there was somebody wanting. I, was, I wasn't going to be left out of that. I mean, I, <laughs> Something I, was happening. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I was always, I mean, no way you couldn't get me not interested in that kind of stuff. So there was this woman. Um, she was blindfolded, and beside her was the pointress. And she said, Miss Dixon. She said it in the dialect, but I'll give it to you in standard English. Uh, Mrs. Dixon, I've come to ask your forgiveness. <laughs> I know that I wronged you. I'm on mourning ground and I cannot advance. And every time I try to advance, you are blocking me. My grandmother called her by her name and said that she'd forgiven her a long time ago. 
So go back and continue your, I think the word my grandmother used was pilgrimage. <clears throat> so she went back. There was no rejoicing for her because usually that's how the session is capped. It's a huge rejoicing. Everybody comes from miles around and they listen to uh, these sojourners recount their visions and so on. And they were usually beautiful stories to listen to. But my, I almost called her name. <laughs> she came back and... Um, she was insane. She was insane? Yeah. She came what do you mean? She came back insane. She came back crazy. There was no rejoicing for her. And if you go on morning ground and you come back and there's no rejoicing, you've been disgraced and you automatically in the community become a pariah because people know that you've done something heinous from which you haven't found deliverance. You use that word pariah in a couple of your books, and it's, it, I guess it made a big well, impact well, yeah, on I you. I mean, I, when, for example, I came out of the closet, I automatically became a pariah in St. Vincent. Yeah. Uh, people, particularly men, were afraid to be seen with me, were afraid to be seen talking to me, so on, yeah. Because it's so frowned upon. Yeah, well, um, they begin to worry whether people would think that they're gay too, and so on. Even guys who were gay that I knew were gay who were in the closet. Yeah. Well, that was 1993, mm -hmm. your first novel. Yeah. Quite some time, I think 18 years later, you had a collection of interviews called Why We Write mm -hmm. with African-Canadian writers. And you talk about the Canadian, you call it the literary superstructure. Yep. Interesting. That at least in the 70s, uh, was simply not interested in publishing uh, yeah. black writing. Yeah, yes. So the thing that I wondered about after reading that is, were you writing assuming you would not get published? Um, well, I mean, I was published. I mean, I, Nancy had already brought out my, um, my novel. But uh, when that novel came out, it was completely ignored in Canada. Totally. Uh, it got one mention in the Gazette, and um, that was because Robert Sandiford came to the launch, and he was and he contacted the Gazette to find out whether or not he could, uh, you know, write, write an some, article about exactly. Yeah. And um, and that's how it ended up getting into a the print media in Canada. That was the only place where it got mentioned. I mean, I was thinking even before you were published by Anansi then that you were writing, because you wrote a lot of short stories. Yeah, but I did not. I Well, I sent them to journals that all turned them all down. Did you think there might be more opportunities elsewhere, like in the States, for example? Uh, well, I did have one published in the States, and I had one published in Europe, in Holland. I did offer the stories in How Loud Can the Village Cockcrow to, um, was it then, um, what is it now? Uh, it was Longmans. They, had, they then had what was called the Caribbean Writers Series, or mm. their, their name for it. It was turned down. 
that was the end of that. Uh, and then, of course, Spirits in the Dark came. So this was now in the mid-90s. Yeah, this was 93. Right? Okay. Yeah. 93, right. Mm-hmm. And at that point, did you have a fairly, a fairly strong community of black writers around you? Oh, well, uh, there was Dion Brand and obviously Philip. Uh, there would have been uh, right, George Eliot Clark, Austin Clark, about eight or ten writers, black writers that I knew of. And did you meet? Did you read each other's work? Yes, I certainly did. Um, I reviewed Nobesi's work. I later reviewed Austin's as well. And George Eliot Clark and I were in touch. At some point, you became involved with the Cola magazine. Mm-hmm. What, what was that about? Well, Cola, we founded Horace Goddard, and I founded uh, Shirley Small, and afterwards Trevor Joyette. We founded Cola because of our experience submitting work to Euro-Canadian journals. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a universal rejection. Everyone had the same experience. Yeah, yeah. it was a universal rejection. So we thought, well, we do need a medium. Uh, some place where black, you know, fiction or poetry dealing with uh, black reality or African, Afro-descendants, whatever you want to call it, reality. And we decided we would create a magazine that did that, yeah. Was there any goal also to kind of wake up the main presses to other literature? No, we we didn't consider that we had that sort of power. <laughs> we just simply wanted writers to send black writers to send their work to us. Okay. Well, did it act as a springboard for anyone in the end? Well, quite a few people who published right. with us ended up being published elsewhere. Uh, you know. Um, uh, we also published our own work in it as well. And you're still the editor after all these years. Well, I <laughs> trust me, I'm an, a very unwilling editor. <laughs> but you're an editor. <laughs> Hor- Horace, Horace was the editor for many, many, many years. I never wanted the job. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm too hypersensitive for that, so I don't know how to. Uh, it's kind of difficult to say to somebody, look, this is bad writing. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, though, though I, I was sometimes angry at Horace because of the, the quality of some of the stuff he accepted. I would That's never a tough have. position, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, you know, I'd simply say, and after a while I stopped making sure that nothing of mine <laughs> went into it. But, I mean, even so, it, it fulfilled the purpose, you know. Um, and now my philosophy has changed somewhat. Um, I, my, my whole approach now is that writing is a way for people to express themselves. And the important thing is that people are expressing themselves. Mm-hmm. So as an editor, one of the things I could do is probably help the people who submit work to us to sort of improve it, you know, be a, a true. Give them feedback. Yeah, give them feedback. That's and, a lot of work. Uh, 
Yeah, it is. It is. And because of that, I'm beginning to think that, well, I call myself the interim editor. Because You've been I, interim for a while, though, Yeah, I've been interim <laughs> for a while. Oh, uh, well, yeah. You also got involved in the uh, Logos lectures. Yeah, those readings, yeah. Yeah, um, which is another community initiative. Yeah, yeah, that... that I think that's where I met you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That is really and truly, I mean, I can take the credit for that. When I came back here, I'd go to readings and I'd be invariably, almost invariably, the only black person there. There were no Asians and there were no blacks. And I said, but come on. Um, There are people in our community who are literary and have literary interests. Why is this so? And so I thought then we should start a series where we sort of promote it as a place where blacks and people, visible minorities, are reading. But we wouldn't also make it exclusively that because literature is a space where you share culture, where people inform one another, um, where community can be built across cultures. Mm-hmm. And and it had to be bilingual and mm-hmm. so on. And so um, I met Mary Metellus around that time and, um, and the rest is history. So it was uh, once a month people could come and exactly. they would read their poetry or their Exactly. And uh, yeah, with um, a copious um, open mic. Yes. At one, at <laughs> Where one... people are cut off. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, we never did put a limit to the number of people in the open mic. But sometimes we found the readings would go on until 11. And so now we. People are nodding off in the air. Yeah, yeah, now we. Now we make it a maximum of eight. So it's still going on. People, oh, people yes. in Montreal can oh, come yes. out. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Excellent. Oh, yes. So you are, at this time, this is the, the 90s, early 2000s, you're teaching and you're writing, and, and then you became ill. Yeah, I came down with um, cancer of the bladder and uh, had surgery and... I was all right for about six years. Mm. Then it returned, and I'd have surgery periodically. And I, I sort of came to the conclusion that if I were going to write or finish many of the books that I'd started and write new ones, hopefully, because it would have been hopefully at that time. <laughs> I'd better start now because I didn't know what would happen, whether the possibility that this cancer would metastasize and and then be long gone, you know, and you know, earning money and and writing critical articles. Th- those were not my priority at that time, so I decided, all right, you know, let me focus on creative writing. You want to be a full-time writer. Exactly. So I... Um, so in 2005, you left your, your teaching Yeah, yeah, job. I... Um, I well, I, well, well, I was taking partial leaves quite a bit uh, uh, for a few years. 
Because was it hard to write while teaching? Yeah. You don't I, have enough time. Yeah, I took partial leaves quite a few years before then. And then, yeah, eventually I left on the 31st of December, 2005. Though I really actually de facto in de facto terms had already left because I accumulated some credits for a dissertation direction and so on and so forth that liberated me from teaching so yeah and then you could would you write all day or how long could you write for no I I on rare occasions I've done oh, an eight hour once, once I even did a, a once I even did a thirteen-hour stint. There is a short story in uh, "When the Bottom Falls Out" that I wrote in one go. No. Um, what's it called now? I don't remember the title. It's just, Just start to finish, though. One session, you wrote it. Yeah, I wrote wow. it. I wrote it, but it was it was continuing on to another story. Um, but yeah, I, is that rare to be I, able to I, sit I, I remember when I when I got up from my desk, <laughs> I was virtually, I was literally staggering. But no, I um, I've rarely. I now I certainly don't do that. Three, four, maximum five hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since retiring, you've you've written three collections of short stories, or you've published three collections mm-hmm. of short stories, collection of essays, a collection of poems. No, actually, since I retired, I've published two collections of short two stories. Two more collections, yeah. all right. Uh, poetry, essays, a series of four novels, starting with No Safeguards. Well, the, the fourth one isn't published yet. It's written. Coming out. It's written, but it's okay. not published. And then you, you mentioned a, another novel that's not part of the series. It's also... Yeah, A Different in, Hurricane, yeah. In That's process. coming. Yeah, yeah. So pretty. Twenty twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> pretty busy. <laughs> well, I think I told Ian McGuinness um, in when was it now? Two thousand fifteen, I think, um, that I gave up a pretty decent salary in order to write full time. Yeah. <laughs> so I would have been very angry with myself if I if it hadn't worked out. Do you see your role as a writer also as an advocate? Or the role of a writer as an advocate? Um, it doesn't come... It's not something that I think about um, consciously, but there are things that I know that I do in my writing. Sometimes I only realize I'm doing it as an afterthought. For example, in my writing, I always make sure that there are good models of parenting uh, because that something that affected me it's something that I, I, I you know growing, one could be traumatized growing up in the Caribbean because you're beaten in school and you're beaten at home and uh, your relatives have the right to beat you. Even older siblings had the right to beat younger siblings. Um, and I noticed that, that domestic f- abuse plays a, a big role in your story. I do. I, I never miss an opportunity to include it and to challenge it. 
and what the characters say are well, they base it on their justification on religion. With oh well, the, yeah, they they find all sorts. Yeah, they say that um, spare the rods. Uh, yeah, religion. yeah, and so on and so forth. They also talk about um, that whole law that said you could beat a woman with anything that didn't wasn't bigger than the size of your thumb kind of a thing and so on you know lots of foolishness men men certainly made rules that favored them and in your series uh, your no safeguards series your main character millington religion plays a large role in his life did, yeah. did religion play a large role in your life huge huge role mm. It, it all feels very, very autobiographical, and so actually so does um, Return to Arcadia. Though I'm not Millington, um, certainly look at me and see that I'm not, I'm not him. He's well, very, very good-looking. He's, 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 he's mixed race and, um, and you know, um, and very attractive and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the trauma that he struggles to expunge I identify with that. Did you ever consider writing it as a memoir rather than a fictional um, story? No, I am. Um, I'm not particularly. Though this week I thought about that, and I said I wrote a note in my journal to the extent that maybe I should write a memoir Uh-oh. because I'm I'm in a sort of a dry period at the moment. Uh, but only two books uh, <laughs> scheduled to come out a dry period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, it means I'm I'm working on nothing at the moment. Um, but no, I no, I I it's funny when I got the Martin Luther King Award, I gave a very brief speech which I titled "The Makings of a Writer," and I talked about a very traumatic period in my life. My grandmother died when I was 11, and um, my grandfather became bedridden one year later, and food disappeared from the house. <laughs> and you were still living there by yourself? Yeah, was, uh, and he, yeah I was living with him. And um, my father and I were always at loggerheads. Um, that's quite an experience. It has taught me a great deal that there's certain standard theories that, that I challenge based on my relationship with my father. And so very quickly, I was 12 and had outgrown all my clothes. And as I said, I was on the precipice of nudity. <laughs> I say this on, in a poem, actually. And um, I defied all the norms of our family and went to work in the farmer's fields, nearing my farmer's fields. So you've structured this series, you structured it in four. Mm-hmm. Practically speaking, how, how do you keep track of the details? There, there's so much meandering. It's... No problem. <laughs> no. There's no problem doing that. The first story is actually Jay, Paul, their grandmother, Mark Houghton. Mm. In the Caribbean, there are two ways of, um, of making it to the middle class. You can emigrate, save money, come back home and start a business. Or you can be lucky and you're born with a good brain 
and somehow you acquire the discipline along the way. And so you win scholarships and what have you. You get a good education and, and a good career. Those are the, basically the two ways of making it into the middle class. Uh, or you can marry somebody who is already come from a poor family and marry somebody who is already in the middle class. But usually that doesn't happen. <laughs> People stay within their classes. Yeah, well, yeah. They, you want to consolidate wealth, you know. I mean, yes. like, that's standard across cultures. Yes. So, yeah, Mark Cotton actually does indeed. Her husband, um, 56-year-old man, she's 19. He comes back and he marries this girl, 19, and, uh, um, and there are lots of examples of that mm. in St. Vincent. Mm. I didn't have to look very far. <laughs> right. Um, and so on, and... She herself was quite bright and had to drop out of school because of the circumstances of poverty. She's an autodidact, and um, she is beyond her society. And my, I'm convinced that the people who make changes in society are the people who are able to think outside of the society, who go beyond, sort of like uh, you can take Jesus Christ as an example, going beyond Judaism uh, in his day, you know, like instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you talk about forgiveness. And Love your neighbor. Exactly, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Uh, those who do you good, those who do you evil, you do them good, and so on. You compensate mm. uh, evil with good, that sort of a thing, yeah. Um, yeah, so Mark Cotton is like that. So, yeah. Um, and she then becomes, for me in that novel, the model of good parenting. And in fact, one of the things that she actually does do is she works actively to break up the marriage of her daughter because she's, you know, she's concerned about the children. Yeah, she wants what's best. Yeah, for yeah. the children. Yeah. yeah. Question about process because I'm I mean I was interested about how you keep track but it doesn't seem to be a problem but no no no, no. It, it was easy um uh yeah and Jay knows Millington they're friends and and Millington's very religious you know that just in passing in the first novel and then in the second novel of course, by then they come to Canada and there's Paul. The second volume is really Paul's story. Mm -hmm. And the third one um, is Jay connecting with Millington again, and they marry, and so on and so forth. And then all the stuff that you don't know about, where Millington's concerned, that becomes, in a way, the engine that drives the novel. So you've known it right from book one? Yeah, I kind of knew it before I finished book one, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be a trilogy, uh, but then it was too much for it to be a trilogy, so it's become a quartet. I wondered also, identity, it's central to your it, idea, Yeah, right? it's but huge in Spirits in the Dark, mm -hmm. and it's huge in Return to Arcadia, because mm -hmm. there I'm dealing with the plantocracy, and... Um, a boy who is raised in it but is not of it, so to speak. Um, but the perceptions of identity are continuously evolving. How do you ensure that your writing feels current for new readers? Uh, um, as far as homosexuality goes in the Caribbean, there's not much evolution there. 
a small number of people, very, 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 very small number of people, are prepared to say, look, this is nonsense, let people live their lives. But the persecution of LGBTQ people is sanctioned by the church, Hmm. which plays a huge role in Caribbean culture. Part of my own popularities in the Caribbean is that I'm an, a candid atheist. And it doesn't sit well with people who even would like to buy my books. And, you know, for example, Easily Fooled. Um, the third in the series. Yeah, they, um, they cannot accept how I portray Methodism, for example, which is the religion in which I grew up. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, on the other hand, in Tome 4 of the novel, I show evolution. I, well, actually, what I do is I show movement and stasis. Movement and stasis. Um, I, I'm not even sure I knew I was going to do that <laughs> at the outset of the novel, but yeah. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if we can go back to the... Um the book we talked about earlier, Why We Write, mm-hmm. the collection of interviews with right. African-Canadian writers. In the introduction, you tell a story about being at a panel at a festival. Yes. And you were asked to define the African-Canadian aesthetic. Yep. And you say you couldn't do it. No. And I'm wondering if you can do it now. Um, no, I'm not sure I can. If I take this autobiographically. I think of all the strands that went into making me. (laughs) It's very, very, very difficult to sort of say what's specifically African and um, how it dominates and so on and so forth. Mark you, when I wrote Spirits in the Dark, one of the questions that obsessed me was who was a West Indian? And I thought... I tried to answer that question indirectly in the novel. I mean, today I would repudiate all of that, I don't think. I mean, we are such composites Mm -hmm. of so many different cultures. So... So trying to define it is too narrow. Too too much too narrow. And, uh, you know, I just... uh, I think somebody's somewhere human... I'm just human. <laughs> yeah, somebody it was somewhere in my um, in my writing. Well, we're at least being exposed to more backgrounds than before in mainstream press. There's been more recognition of immigrant writers, uh, more diverse voices. That's true. But what will it look like when we've got to where you want us to be? Uh, there's one thing I believe uh, from my many years of living, and I'm not unique in this, is that human nature is unchangeable. I believe that. Insofar as human nature is unchangeable, the challenges that we have today will also be the challenges of tomorrow. They will be configured possibly differently, but the same needs will be driving them be energizing them. So the need to 
create identity groups. You know, just last night I was watching something on Al Jazeera, um, the Nordic resistance movement. <laughs> um, it's, an, it's a movement in, um, in Scandinavia where these people, these guys who've decided that they don't want anybody but um, Nordic people in Scandinavia. And um, there's a chap who opposes them and the documentary centered around his meeting with them and explaining to them that, you know, the Vikings, they did travel a lot and they did interact quite a bit and so on and so forth. And, you know, uh, archaeology shows that people of different races, etc., lived in Sweden in Viking times and so on and so forth. But that had no impact on these guys. They, they needed that label for their identity and it's to the exclusion of others. I mean, you know, um, or you can take the African continent and or, or any given a nation in on the African continent and people who are who used to be called tribes who call themselves nations now or ethnic groups they still have trouble accepting people outside of you know and there was a time on the continent when if you did not have a membership, if you were expelled from your, your tribe, your, your group, you became a nobody. You, you had nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Yeah. Because they right away, uh, nobody's going to take you in because they knew that you violated some code or the other. And uh, the, the best that would happen is that you would be sold into slavery and so on. Um, and we, we look around us and... Uh, at school, in the schoolyard, the groups, the bullying, you belong, you don't belong, scapegoating, etc., etc. These things wouldn't change. That need that some people have to look down on others in order to make themselves feel superior, whatever. Um, and then there are a certain number of people, hopefully not too, too many, who delight in the pain they inflict on others. And uh, so those things will be there. They're part of human nature. So I would say that the same problems will exist in the future. They will just be configured differently. Nigel, thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. And really appreciate thanks it. for this opportunity to get... I don't think I've been ever this expansive uh. about, about the, the issues that drive my writing. Thanks. Thank you. That was H. Nigel Thomas. Find the 30th anniversary edition of Spirits in the Dark, No Safeguards, and his other books at fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to follow us on your podcast app and to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, I'll be talking to Harvard grad and debut author Michelle Sibba.